Thank you. <laughs> um, let's pray. Let's pray before we get into it this morning. Lord, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to come freely into your house this morning, Lord. I pray this morning that our ears would be open, our hearts would be open to receive what it is you want to say to us this morning, Lord God. We thank you that you are a good, loving Father, and we pray that you'll bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I love that we sung House of Miracles as well. There's that line, come alive in the name of Jesus. And I just felt that there are some nuggets in this message that are going to help us to come alive in the name of Jesus. Well, today we are in part five of our series on Psalm 23. So let's read the whole thing again so that we can read verse five in context this morning. I hope you're starting to learn it off by heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In verse 5, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't this psalm just full of incredible imagery? It truly paints a picture of the blessing and goodness of God when we walk in an intimate relationship with Him. From green pastures and quiet waters to His presence in the darkest valley, and now at a table. Now, I'm not sure what table you picture, but I, can, I, I guarantee that all of our tables look different. You know, some of us are probably picturing this beautiful Rimu table, maybe a glass top table, maybe round, maybe rectangular. Some of us picture a table with the most glorious seafood buffet. Some of us think that's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> some of us may picture an amazing grazing platter that's perfectly imperfect, you know, perfectly imperfectly laid out, um, perfectly cut too. And, um, but some people might have even not imagined any food on the table at all. It's just the dining room table in your, lo- in your dining room. So to bring some alignment to our imaginary tables, let's, let's look closer at what King David, the author of the psalm, was talking about when he talked about this table. David was a shepherd boy who was anointed by God to be king. God said to David, you will shepherd my people and you will become their ruler. David knew about sheep and what it meant to be a good shepherd, and he also knew the honor of sitting at the king's table. And this is the kind of table he speaks about in verse 5. This is a royal table, one of elegance and abundance, magnitude and brilliance, yet it is private and intimate. David wrote this psalm retrospectively looking back on his life. Being in the presence of of enemies was very real for King David. He was literally in the presence of people wanting to kill him. He had to flee, he was hunted, he fought in great battles, yet it was God who continually made a way for him and provided for him in every situation. Scripture tells us it was the Lord who gave him the victory. So while this psalm is written poetically and metaphorically, it also speaks to what some of David journeyed in his life, a testimony of God's faithfulness and goodness throughout. He speaks to both the physical and the spiritual provision of God. It was in looking back that he was able to see the way God cared for him throughout his entire life. God protected him and provided for him, just like a shepherd does for his sheep. This verse not only talks about the abundant table prepared for us, but it talks about who we are at the table. In biblical times, it was customary for the host to anoint the head of an honoured dinner guest. There is mention of this in Luke 7, where the woman pours perfume on Jesus' feet. 
Her actions are rebuked by others at the table, but Jesus says to the host, you did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. When David says, you anoint my head with oil, he is referring to himself as an honored guest at the table of God. Of course, his cup would overflow at this thought. This verse provides an incredible image of provision, abundance, and hope. It is an image of the grace of God. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Everything we have is a grace gift from God. He is our provider, and in Him we lack nothing. But like every good gift, we have to accept it. There is an invitation to sit with Him at the table that He has prepared for us. The question is, how do we respond to this invitation? It may seem obvious, but the first thing we need to do is we actually need to take our seat. Has anyone been to a wedding where there is no guest list? I mean, there is no seating chart, sorry. There's always a guest list. Oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. Oh, it's a sh- exactly. It's a shambles. You, you, the anxiety takes over. How close do I sit? Do I put my bag down? Do I reserve a seat? Is that looking like I belong here? I, I don't know. The anxiety stops us from taking a seat anywhere. But on the other hand... When you see the setting chart and you see your name, oh, the peace. You can relax, you can sit, you know you belong, you know you're invited. Oh, it feels so good. God offers us a seat at the table he prepares for us with our name on it. He offers it to us because he wants to be in relationship with us, yet it is often the enemies in our life that keep us from taking our seat. I believe that there are two main reasons why we don't take our seat and live in an intimate relationship with him. The first is that we don't think we belong or we don't feel good enough to be at the table. We might see that someone else in our world, Darcy kind of mentioned this before, we might see someone else has taken their seat, and they're constantly talking about how good God is, the faithfulness of God, um, about this revelation they had while reading the Word, and what we do is we ask them to grab us a plate. We don't feel worthy to sit at the table ourselves, so we ask for leftovers. We rely on the revelation and testimony of others alone for encouragement. In our lives, this might look like self-condemnation, self-pity, low confidence, insecurity, and comparison. While the testimony of others is great, God wants to be in an intimate relationship with all of us. The second is that we don't think we need the table. We have our head down foraging for our own food, looking to our own abilities or other idols in our life to provide for us. To sit at the table would mean that we have to give over control or admit that we can't face our enemies on our own, or on our own terms. This might look like pride, greed, striving, anxiety, and sometimes burnout. Taking your seat is an act of humility. Humility is when we take the focus off ourselves, whether it's out of pride or out of self-pity. Focusing on ourselves keeps us away from the table. Taking your seat is moving the focus off the enemy surrounding you and giving God your full attention. To sit is to submit. And on our submission, we find freedom, nourishment, and perspective. Taking your seat is to experience the incredible grace of God. A bride and a groom do not select their wedding guests based on merit, looks, or ability. They select their guest list based on relationship. You don't have to earn your seat by what you can do, but you're offered it by the relationship that you have. With God, we cannot earn a seat. We can't work for a seat. We aren't good enough for a seat. It is by His grace and out of His love for us that He offers us one. 
He gives us an invitation to come into an intimate relationship with him where there is life and abundance. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, God sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint the future king. David is such an unlikely candidate that he wasn't even inside. He was outside, humbly tending to the sheep. But when he is brought in, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. God had anointed David to be king. This was David's purpose, his anointing given by God and therefore protected by God. It was God who gave him a seat at the king's table. And it was God who vindicated him from his enemies. David did nothing to earn a seat. He simply said yes to the invitation. King David knew the invitation and the grace of the king's table. The second thing I think we need to do um, at the table is to recline. How great is it when the dinner host says, let's move to the lounge for a cup of tea? Oh, there's something about sinking into a couch <laughs> to carry on a conversation started at the dinner table. There's a new level of comfort, of security, of vulnerability. And in ancient times, kings would recline at the table to eat their meals. They didn't sit in chairs like we do, but reclined on pillows. The Romans adopted this practice around the third century BC. So we also read about Jesus reclining at tables throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 26, Jesus was reclining at the table where the woman poured oil over his head. In Matthew 9, Jesus was reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Reclining prioritizes fellowship with God. We so often come to God with a list of prayer requests with our wants and our needs, but when we recline, it's a different posture for a different purpose. The purpose is relationship. Reclining is in a natural posture when we're surrounded by enemies, but the more we spend time with him growing in intimacy and in trust, the more we realize we can have complete peace in his presence no matter what is happening around us. I was 38 weeks pregnant with um, Finley, my first daughter, when we went into the very first lockdown. Um, When everything was shutting, it was all crazy. And there were so many unknowns, and there was this moment where anxiety and fear started to take over, and I knew I just needed to be in the presence of God. I sat down outside on a lounger, leant back and closed my eyes, and I instantly felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I heard him say, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And he led me to 1 Chronicles 11 verse 9 that says, And David became more and more powerful because the Lord of hosts was with him. The Lord of hosts was with him. This title speaks to the power and the authority of God. He is the all-powerful ruler of the universe. He has angelic forces at his command, and we can trust in him. When you're in the presence of the Lord of hosts, fear and anxiety don't stand a chance. Spending time with God puts everything else in perspective. As we spend time in his presence, our faith increases as we gain perspective on who he is. Our trust develops as we dwell with him. Psalm 91 verse 1 to 2 says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. To recline is to prioritize His presence over all else. To know the security that comes from the protection, love, and care of our Good Shepherd. David knew that if he listened, stayed listening to God and trusting Him that he did not need to fear. He knew that God would protect him and provide for him in more ways than he could ever imagine, despite any enemy he faced. King David knew the security of the king's table. And the third thing that we need to do at the table might seem obvious too. We need to eat. 
A few years ago, Paul and I went to Japan, and I was very thankful to find out before we went that a common practice of mine is heavily frowned upon in many places of Japan. This practice, and I'm going to try and say this right, is tabe aruke. Aruki. No, I got it right the second time. <laughs> tabe aruki. I asked my brother who used to live in Japan. Eating while walking. You'd think in a thriving, busy place like Osaka or Tokyo, this would be common practice, but it is a cultural no-no. One of the reasons is because of their respect for their food. Eating while walking does not provide the time to appreciate food, where it comes from, the flavors, all of those things. It is basically disrespectful to not enjoy your food. I believe that a lot of our culture today encourages tabe aruki. Our jam-packed schedules encourage the efficiency of takeaways or eating on the go. We can find ourselves eating in the car, eating in our, at our desk while we're working, or eating while distracted by our phones or in front of the TV. Many of us also speed eat, shoveling food into our mouths that we've just got to get it done. The problem with this is that it creeps into other areas of our lives as well. In our busyness, our time with God in, or in the Word can look a lot like this. We go to our favorite book in the Bible to grab a verse of encouragement. In the morning, or skim over the word for today just to get a little bit of nourishment. We may find ourselves looking to Instagram posts by great teachers or pastors as an alternative to reading the word. However, the word of God is not a pill to be swallowed, but words of life to be chewed on and meditated on. King David didn't have a nice wee phone with a Bible app, uh, or even a little pocket Bible. Rather, a huge scroll. This wasn't something he could carry around with him, so he learnt the scriptures off by heart so that he could meditate on them constantly. He said in Psalm 1, Blessed is the, or Blessed is the one who does not step in t- walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The Hebrew word for meditate literally means to chew. When we eat quickly, we forget to chew, but chewing is where we break down the food and get all of the nutrients out of it. Think about fine dining. You chew that tiny expensive meal more than any other because you want to make the most of every bite, enjoying all of the intense flavors. We need to chew on God's word to get all of the goodness out of it, to allow it to nourish our souls and be amazed by the intricacies within it. Proverbs 4, 20 to 22 says, My child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart, for they bring life to those who find them and healing to their whole body. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word is alive and powerful and sharper than any, other, any double-edged sword. The Holy Spirit is able to highlight scripture to us, piercing the heart, speaking right into our circumstances, providing hope and healing. One way I've loved to chew on the word this year has been to physically write out verses word for word. It is in the practice of actually writing out the verses that you start to see more of what God is saying, more depth, more clarity, more understanding. It is also a great tool for the lost art of memorizing scripture. Our kids do it in the kids program, but how often are we, are we practicing that, memorizing scripture? A few of our small group were up at Sunshine Ranch um, a wee while ago, and we were praying at the top of the gate. And one of the girls suggested Liv, who lives over here. She um, works and, and lives at the ranch. And someone suggested she pray Psalm 91 over the ranch. And as we're frantically looking for a phone to search for Psalm 91, Liv's like, oh, I know Psalm 91. And she then, off by heart, prayed Psalm 91 over the ranch. And how amazing to hear her declare those words that she memorized and knew off by heart. It was beautiful. This is my challenge to you. For the next week, choose one verse and write it out every day. 
slowly looking at the words and phrases. Ask the Holy Spirit for clarity and revelation and let the words speak life to your soul. Take time to meditate on the word and let it fill you and transform you. King David meditated on the word because he knew the nourishment of the king's table. Ben can join me now. This week I've been reminded of the power of a meal. We have this incredible ministry called The Food Crew, a team of people who makes meals for those in need. And when a meal is prepared for a family who might be facing health struggles, uh, the adjustment of a new baby, um, maybe surgery, or even the death of a loved one, not only does it nourish the family physically, refueling and strengthening them for another day, but it provides hope. The meal shows that the family is not alone in their struggle, but they are provided for and cared for. It doesn't take the situation away, but it shows that you aren't alone in it. A couple of years ago, my husband Paul and I were worried about finances, so we were praying together for God's provision. The next day, Shara, who's one of our incredible members of our church, came over with an unexpected meal for us, spaghetti bolognese and cranberry bad baker cookies. We realized later how God had answered our prayer with this meal. He was providing hope, showing us that He was our provider. What made it more amazing was that unbeknown to Shara, she had prepared Paul's favorite meal in the world, spaghetti bolognese, and brought his favorite cookies that I'd never even seen before. This is the unmerited favor and blessing of God. He loves us so much that He would remind us that He knows us, cares for us, and provides for our every need. He is a good Father who so dearly loves His children. A meal provides hope. The King's table provides hope. Now, if we fast forward about a thousand years from the time of King David, we find ourselves at another table, one that points to the hope of eternal life in Jesus. But we'll come back to this table in a moment. In John 6, we read about one of Jesus' most famous miracles, the multiplication of two fish and five loaves of bread to feed a crowd of about 5,000 people. Not only did everyone in the crowd get some food, but it says they had as much as they wanted and there were leftovers. The abundance and magnitude of the table of God on display. Later in John 6, Jesus is talking to the crowd who had witnessed this very miracle. The people were so focused on the bread that would fill their tummies, on fleshly desires, but Jesus was trying to tell them about something so much greater. He was telling them about who He was. From verse 47 in John 6, it says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. God miraculously provided food for the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus had miraculously multiplied food for the crowd, but this food did not last. Here, Jesus is speaking about the eternal hope we have in Him. The people were so focused on physical bread that perishes, but Jesus is telling them He is spiritual bread that brings eternal life. Not only does He provide for us here on earth, but He would soon sacrifice His life for the life of the world. He would give His life for ours. We come to the communion table, not focused on the abundance of what He can give us, but on the sacrifice He made for us on the cross. Our focus is not to see what we can get, but to seek who He is. We read in Luke 22 that Jesus reclined at a table in the presence of His enemy. 
During a meal, Jesus took some bread, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the wine and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus was speaking about what was to come. His body would be broken and his blood shed as a payment for the sins of the world. In the presence of his enemy Judas, the one who would betray him, Jesus points us to hope and unimaginable grace. Jesus made it possible for us to sit at at God's table. He died on the cross so that we could be in right relationship with him. We We can come to the table without condemnation because of his sacrifice. You're invited to sit at the table. Often we picture the Last Supper a bit like da Vinci's painting, but this was another table where Jesus reclined with the disciples. Communion is about spending time in his presence. We dwell in order to remember the cross and we take time to let the Holy Spirit work within our hearts to reveal anything we must lay down before him. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We eat and drink to remember his body and his his body sorry his body broken and his blood shed for us. The communion table provides hope for all who would come. I used to attend a smaller local church and with communion the elders would come to the front of the church and they would hand out the bread and the juice. And there was I always loved going to this one elder because he would always say, Anna, Jesus' body broken for you. Hearing my name was a reminder that Jesus died on the cross for me and has a seat for me at his table. In the same way we have our name on the seat at a wedding table, Jesus has our name on a seat at his table. So Nyla, LJ, Alday, Emma, Shara, Jesus' body broken for you and his blood shed for you. Together we're going to eat and drink in remembrance of him. 